From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. Ninety-three thousand people have died from overdoses this year alone. Ninety-three thousand reported. I've I've lost three friends in the past year and a half to overdose. Wow. I couldn't just remain silent. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and our guest today is Rabbi Michael Paris. So this is a special episode, and earlier this year, Rabbi Paris took the courageous decision to share with his congregation, which is Temple Sinai in Cinnaminson, New Jersey, the fact that he was a recovering opioid addict. In April, Rabbi Paris celebrated 10 years in recovery, or as he puts it, being liberated from opioids. He also shared his story with the press, particularly the Jewish Telegraphic Agency and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And both those stories got picked up and reprinted in outlets around the globe. Those pieces helped create a larger stir and really restart a conversation about addiction in the Jewish community and help serve to humanize a religious leader and the role of religious leader. So a couple personal notes. First of all, Rabbi Michael's wife, Rachel, she was my on-air podcasting partner for close to three years on the previous show, Trending Jewish. And it would be completely fair and accurate to say that I owe my start in podcasting to Rachel, uh, who encouraged me to start, actually built the studio, um, taught me a lot of what I know. So I want to acknowledge that on the air. And, and thanks to, to Rachel for, uh, Paris for your support and listening. And I've known Michael for a number of years. I talk about this a little bit in the, uh, in the interview as well. I first met him even before I came to work at Reconstructing Judaism. I, I think I attended a lunchtime uh, lecture, and, and Michael just saw a new person and sought me out to schmooze, which is actually a really good uh, trait for a rabbi. And I could tell off the bat, he was sharp, extroverted, eager co to connect. In pre-COVID times, he and Rachel were guests in my home for Thanksgiving. And the point being, I knew him more than just a passing acquaintance. And I had no idea, I mean, no idea that he had this past uh, in his background. Um, I knew he'd suffered some physical ailments from an old car injury, but that was about it. So I had no idea of the pain he was carrying, the ordeals he endured, and the struggle it must have taken him to get to the point uh, where he's a respected religious leader and beloved partner. So that really enforced for me, what, what, what did it enforce for me? I think the hidden struggles with addiction that we don't see and just kind of the hidden struggles behind everything and everyone. You really don't know what the person next to you is, is, is going through. And, um, and, and that just seems really profound and, and, and part of the story. So before we get there, a reminder, Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations uh, can be found at evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. And you can find essays on a range of topics uh, really important to Jewish uh, life right now. The environment, racism, Israel, Palestine, gender, and, um, 
and everything there is to read for free. And until now, every episode of this show we've done has been based in, in one way or another on an Evolve essay. And we're taking a break from that uh, approach just for just for this episode because uh, Michael's story is out there. It's fresh. It's really being talked about. And um, I think it's really in line with our mission of promoting groundbreaking conversations within the Jewish community. And certainly there aren't enough conversations being had about about addiction and and its repercussions. So that's why we're here. All right. So Rabbi Michael Paris serves as the rabbi of Temple Sinai of Cinnamonson, New Jersey, and he is a 2020 graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Way back in 2015, Rabbi Paris was named one of the top 20 emerging religious leaders in southern New Jersey, and he's delivered the opening invocation at the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and uh, the Philadelphia Mayor's Centenarian Celebration. Rabbi Michael Paris, um, thank you. Welcome, welcome to the show. Um, it's, it's it's good to have you. Good to good to check in. This is such an important topic, and we know you've talked a lot about it. So really appreciate you your willingness to have another another conversation. No, thank you, Brian. It's my honor to be here. It's an important conversation. I love what Evolve does as a podcast, and I'm really excited to have this conversation for people to hear it. Great. So. Earlier this year, you celebrated 10 years of sobriety after after a four-year battle with opioid addiction and then decided to share this part of your life with your relatively new congregation and, and, and since then have become very outspoken about the issue of addiction. So I guess I, I want to start by asking when was there a moment that you realized you were addicted to, to Vicodin or, or, or was it just something that you realized over, over time? So, you know, the way I, I, I like to frame this conversation, Brian, is, is that my addiction began like millions of Americans, innocently but tragically. It was about 2007, you know, maybe 2006. I'm not exactly sure the exact date, but I was in a car accident. I was a Temple University student. I was driving home from school one day and I was at the bottom of a hill at a red light. And the person coming up from behind me probably wasn't aware that I was stopped in front of them. And in my rear view mirror, I could literally see them texting. So I knew they were going to hit me. It was just one of those surreal moments where I was just bracing for the impact. And because I was bracing for the impact, I did the thing doctors say you should never do, which is tense up your whole body in an accident. And because I tensed up my body, it probably made the accident more severe than it would have been. So this car just came flying in. As if me. we're supposed to practice how to get I know, into a terrible accident. Exactly. Just have that, you know. Exactly. Just, you know, it's funny that like, you know, they say that like, oh, if you had only been loose, like how was I going to be loose knowing somebody <laughs> was going to crash into me at 40 miles an hour? But, you know, I, I was hit from behind pretty, pretty hard. And I had, you know, whiplash. I had shoulder issues. But my main issue was a dislocated disc in my lower right back. And it would cause this horrible nerve pain down my right leg. So for like weeks after this accident, I would have to get up at like two in the morning every single night because it felt like my muscle was being ripped apart. And I lived in an apartment building. So I would just walk up and down the steps every single night I'm trying to get this pain to ease. And I finally was like, this is insanity. How can anybody live like this? So I went to my doctor 
And, you know, 10 years is a long time. And I think we know a lot more than we knew then. If I had gone to the doctor today, the first thing might not have been a prescription of opiates. It might have been, I don't know, physical therapy or injections, everything I did later on. But 10 years ago, doctors were operating under the assumption that many of us were that these medications weren't addictive. That's what the pharmaceutical companies told them. So I was prescribed to a very low dose of Vicodin. And what happens is, this is the, the, the dark irony of using pain medication, is that it doesn't solve your pain. It actually masks it. So what ended up happening was the more I took, the more my pain levels began to intensify. So over a couple of weeks, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. I'm in more pain than when I started. So I go back to the doctor. I say, I, I need more. So he raises the prescription up a little. Come back a few weeks later, it's not working. Raise up this prescription a little more. By the third time I go back and the doctor's like, whoa, we can't keep raising your prescription. At that point, I was, I was firmly addicted to, to these medications, firmly. So it, at that point, I, 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 I wouldn't have thought of it as an addiction. It wouldn't have been that clear in my mind because I was in pain. I was getting it from a doctor, but I knew I couldn't stop. I knew I had built the tolerance and I couldn't stop. I mean, I know you said, we, you pointed out 10 years have passed, awareness has increased. I mean, does some, does, does some part of you blame this, this physician for what happened? No, absolutely not. You know, there are doctors in that era that acted, I think, unethically, you know, were very greedy, but I think my doctor represents most doctors in America, people who are doing a hard job, who just don't want to see their patients in pain. I think he, he was a really good guy, really just sympathetic, but, you know, was lied to the way many doctors were lied to by the pharmaceutical company. So if anybody was to blame, it's the pharmaceutical companies who purposely misled, you know, the, the consumers, if you want to call that, and the doctors in saying these medications were non-addictive when they knew that was a bold-faced lie. So you're in you're in your latter part of college and 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 I guess early career while while this was going on I, I believe you worked in political campaigns to some yeah I was a level. political science major and and I and I you know did small time political campaign work mostly as a volunteer some some paid stuff after but during this time I was I was kind of like a a junior senior in college and I was working part time different you know political campaigns yeah so just. Just to paint a picture, I mean, are you, are you, are you functioning well during this time? Yeah, would, highly would colleagues, functioning. Colleagues, highly functioning. you know, whoever you were working with, they wouldn't know this, 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 this guy's got a big problem. I mean, it not was... a clue, not a clue, not in the beginning, at least, you know, the thing about addiction is it becomes pervasive in your life. And the more you delve deep into that rabbit hole, the more you push people away. And we could talk about that. But in the beginning, I would say I was highly functioning. Not only did it take away my pain, you know, the anxiety I felt, the depression I felt all from like being injured, you know, like went away with it. So it kind of made me the person I wanted to be. But there was a consequence of that, of like needing more and more. And you get to a point where your tolerance becomes so unsustainable. I was taking between 80 and 100 milligrams of Oxycontin every day. At some point, 
you can't go to doctors anymore. You know, your prescriptions start running out like 10 days into a 30 day period. You've gone to every doctor you can think of, you know, what they call doctor shopping. And eventually you have to go to people, you know, friends, friends of friends, and it costs a lot of money. And so to this day, I kind of like reflect on, wow, how did I come up with that amount of money every single day to feed this addiction? But it becomes a survival technique because what you're trying to avoid at all costs is the withdrawal, which for anybody who doesn't know about opiate withdrawal, it is a torture that is really undescribable. And you kind of make it your mission to never go through that. So you have this this really powerful story of, of of you know I guess either the moment where you you hit bottom or or where you really realized what was happening and and, and needed help and and I want to hear you tell that but I, I also want to I I, I want to ask it as part of that I mean you you trained in 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 the in the reconstructionist uh, movement I work for the reconstructing Judaism and and it's it's sort of founder and, and intellectual intellectual forebearer, Mordecai Kaplan, taught about God as the power that makes for salvation, which, which sounds simple and I've never quite understood. But, but I really was wondering, was, was that a formation of God that was, was with you in the moment? Let that, me back up and tell, tell the yeah. story and, and then we'll, we'll delve deep into the theological part, which I, you know, I, I do connect to this moment, but let me back up and say that or, you know, after a few years of, you know, being in the throes of addiction, I kind of went into the early stages of withdrawal. And as I just said momentarily ago, it's, it's a torture. It's, it's horrible. You know, as I describe it, like minutes seem to last for hours, hours seem to last for days, and days seem to last for an eternity. You're truly trapped in a prison of your own body. It's like time stops moving. And, you know, I, I, I made it my mission to never go through that, even long after I knew I had wanted to stop taking these medications, the fear of stopping kept me going. So, but everybody eventually, some people call it a bottom. I call it hitting a wall because I don't think it has to come at like your worst moment, but, but, you know, you do hit this wall where, you know, you've told every lie you can tell you've borrowed every dollar you could borrow, and you just can't get access to this thing that you need to survive. And I know for many people listening, they've never, I hope never have gone through an opiate withdrawal. And some people have trouble wrapping their mind around it. Cause they say, well, you know, isn't three days of kind of like pain or hardship worth getting back your entire life? And I put it to people like this. What if I took your food? What if I took your water? How long could you go? Could you go 12 hours, 24, 36, 48? How long until you are doing literally anything in your power to get the thing you need to survive? Because that's what we're talking about when you form an addiction to these substances. Your, 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 your biochemical, neurological, it's all embedded in you and you need it. And if you don't have it, I've seen people die in withdrawal. It's that severe. So I want people to know that it's a very dangerous thing to go through withdrawal. I don't encourage people doing it on their own. If you have to do it, please, by all means, seek help, get medical help. But 10 years ago, I would not have taken that advice because if you sought to, if you sought medical help 10 years ago, you would have had to admit what you were going through. And I was not prepared to do that. So 
I'm going into withdrawal. It's April, 2011, 10 years ago. And I'm going through my phone, looking through every contact, every person, anybody who can help me get out of this situation. Nobody's picking up the phone and you're in a panic. You're just panicking. But like I said, you, you, you're not willing to risk going to tell anybody because you actually in your mind think that would be worse. Eventually, I get a friend of mine on the phone who's no longer alive. And I say, you know, I'm in a really bad way. I, I need help. Don't worry. I got you. I'll be there in an hour. Three hours later, my friend shows up at the door, knock at the door, go to the door. Hey, hey, buddy, you know, like, here you go. I got to run. Love you. Hope, you know, good luck. Hands me something. I shut the door thinking, you know, he's going to give me like the thing that we've always done together, which was Oxycontin. I looked down and it wasn't Oxycontin. It was heroin. And I had never done heroin before. It's a very intimidating moment because heroin was something that I, that always kind of seemed other to me than what I did. You know, nowadays we know that addiction, opiate addiction, heroin, it's all very similar. But even then I knew that was like, Ooh, this is not something I wanted to do. But when you're in this moment of like a violent physical reaction, all options are on the table. All options have to be on the table because all you're thinking about is how do I make this pain stop? And how do I make it stop immediately? So I'm kind of walking to my bathroom and I'm looking down at this bag of heroin and it's got the Hulk on it, you know, like the, the Marvel character, the Hulk on it. And it wasn't until many years later, somebody was like, was, did you think that was some kind of like symbolic moment of like this monster inside of you, like coming out? And I was like, no, there, you know, you couldn't be that like thoughtful about it in that moment. All I thought was like staring at this bag and seeing the Hulk was how surreal my life had gotten. Like, why is this bad? You know, why is the Hulk on this bag of heroin? Like, what world am I operating in? And so, you know, I, I, I walked to the bathroom and I want people to understand, as I just said, I, I was experiencing an intense physical reaction and I'm looking at this bag and I'm, I'm about to do it. And this moment of calm kind of like washed over me in a way that like in that moment felt like dramatically different. And I had like what I can only describe. And it's like the hardest part of the story to talk about, because I don't even know how I would have like understood this if somebody had told me this, but I had this moment of clarity where I, I was able to see, like, if I did this, I was going to die. I just like knew it. I didn't know if I was going to die like then and there on the spot. I just had this like real instinctual feeling in my like gut that like you do this, there's no coming back. You're going to, you're going to die. And in, in a moment, like in a moment, I took the drugs and I flushed them down the toilet. I called my parents like five minutes later. And I just said, you know, I, I am in a, in a very, you know, in, I'm in a situation that is, is really, really bad and I need your help. And my parents were shocked and they were upset and they were dismayed. But more than anything, they just wanted to help their son. And the next day started my recovery from these medications, which, you know, is a whole other, you know, topic. But yeah. I, I have to ask, did your, did your friend suffer, suffer an overdose? Uh, actually, uh, no, he, this friend did not die of an overdose, but this, you know, like many friends, um, 
you surround yourself with the people who understand, right? So it's interesting, you know, as a rabbi, we're always talking about community. There was kind of this community of people all going through the same thing. And it's kind of, you know, tragic thinking back about how many people I knew who were in the throes of an opiate addiction. But in that, we provided support for one another, friendship. It was based around this horrible thing. But even within that was like this deep connection of people trying to help each other out, trying to be a support when everybody else in your life was kept at like a distance. So there are different paths towards towards recovery. I think I think there's um, maybe the mistaken impression there's only there's only one way to do it. Can you can you talk at all about whatever choices you you know you faced and 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 why you made them? Yeah. Oh, and and by the way, I I totally forgot the second part of your question. We were talking about the the Mordechai Kaplan piece and the theological piece. Sorry, when I tell this story, no, it's you like, were right. You were you're, 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 you were you were right. I was I was out of order. I figured we no get no back no there, no. So. I, I I apologize. You know, your mind goes in a lot of different directions. <laughs> yeah. But what the thing that I kind of left out of that story, and I leave out almost intentionally at times is that when I was going through withdrawal, I was not really a religious person. I was a secular Jew. And I remember being angry with God. And I remember this moment of cursing at God, like, why are you doing this to me? I'm not a bad person. Like, what did I do to deserve this? And, you know, that moment of cursing at God, I tracked, I traced that to that moment in the bathroom in that moment. of I connected those two things. And whether that's, you know, in my mind or whatever, you know, that's not for me to like, you know, try to unpack. It felt very real to me in that moment that I had this spiritual experience. And it was later that I kind of wanted to delve deeper into what was that? Did something happen? And, you know, it connects more. I'm sure we'll talk about why I decided to share this, but it connects into that. Okay. I just wanted to like make that point. So in terms of like the question about recovery. So the next day, I, you know, when I was faced with the reality that I might have to go to like an inpatient rehab, I refused. I just flat out refused because I, I, wanted to have a career. I wanted to have a life. And I, I, I was just so convinced I was not going to be able to do those things. So my parents have a lot of resources. And this is, I always kind of point that out. Were able to let me see like an outpatient doctor the next day, a, a person, an addiction specialist who, you know, was a counselor, uh, a doctor, an MD who kind of had this niche in a treating addiction. So I recognize many people would not have been able to do what I did. And that's part of what we have to change. But okay. So I went to the doctor and he said, you know, we're learning new things about addiction every day, specifically opiate addiction. He said, 80% of the time, people who come off cold turkey on these medications uh, reuse. And he said, if you, you know, do it like that, you're probably going to end up most likely back on these, these medications. He says there are new medications. This is called medically assisted treatment, MAT. He said they, they're new and you're going to be on these medications for years, years. But I want you to know if you follow my regimen, I think it will save your life. 
I, he's like, I, tr- I firmly believe that. And I wanted that. I wanted that. I, I was not willing to deviate. And the truth is it did work for me. Now, this is controversial in recovery spaces. You know, there's always a big divide in, in, you know, 12 step and, and, and Matt, and, you know, I'll, I'll say this, there is not one path to recovery. You know, I believe that everybody has different situations that lead to different types of recovery because I was in an injury because I was still dealing with the pain after going through the withdrawal. I needed something to like, get me, you know, back to, to where I could be to operate. And these medications did that for me. So I saw them as a saving, you know, as a saving grace, if you want to call it that many people do abuse these medications. That's why it's like controversial. Some people just use them to kind of get them through the withdrawal. And then they go back on the opiates. I didn't want that. I just wanted to get my life back. And so I am a big advocate of these medications, though. I will, um, say they're not for everybody. They are definitely not for everybody. Okay. If you're enjoying this interview, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or review. Positive ratings really help others find out about the show. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Check out our back catalog for lots of other groundbreaking conversations. Okay. Now back to our interview with Rabbi Michael Priest. So there's 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 so many uh, so many strands of your story that we're trying to trying to pull pull together here to sort of get us to the get us to the present day. But it's it's all fascinating, although heart wrenching to to live through. And and you did point out that you you know you were certainly in your early adulthood by and large a a secular a secular Jew. So um, you know how did how did you become not only a, you know, a religious Jew, but somebody who wanted to become a, a rabbi, rabbi and, and is a rabbi? <laughs> That's a great, no, it's a great question. And, and it's I'm all sure connected. a short answer, right? <laughs> yeah, very short. Um, it's all connected. You know, the thing about the thing about battling an addiction, it brings you down. I, I want to I don't want to call it the lowest level, but it's like such a humbling experience you, you, you know, you get like knocked off of every peg you've ever stand on and you have to rebuild your life. And, uh, you know, my family owns Jewish funeral homes. A lot of people know that I never wanted to be a funeral director. It was something I never wanted to do. But because I was in this phase where I was rebuilding my life, I couldn't get a different type of job. I needed to work in a situation where, you know, I was able to work around a lot of the issues I was having you know, having a family business wasn't the worst thing, but it was a blessing in disguise because working at the funeral home allowed me to see rabbis doing this amazing pastoral work with families in their time of need. Now, the thing we didn't talk about in this interview that also people know about my story. We're going back that, to the early 1990s, I guess. Yeah, was, right? that, and- was that my rabbi growing up had his wife murdered and that was a very tragic experience for, for obviously our rabbi, community. This is Rabbi Fred Newlander, Newlander. and the, and the, yeah. and the temple was McCor Shalom. Right. And, and he was, he was convicted. Every, he was the, convicted of, of hiring two people to, to stage a home invasion in an attempt to have his wife killed, not an okay. attempt. They, they did it. Um, and that was one of these moments where I'm 10, 11 years old thinking, Whoa, these people, 
these guys, these rabbis are fakes and phonies. You know, I don't even know if I believe in this God thing. I don't want anything to do with this Judaism thing. Now, you can't shed being Jewish, but I wasn't a practicing Jew for about 10 years from the ages of thir- you know, 14 to 24. I had my bar mitzvah because it was important to my family. And, you know, I went to the high holidays with my grandmother, you know, because it meant a lot to her. We observed Passover. But, you know, I, I didn't really have a very um, a mesh Jewish upbringing from that age to, 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 to the present in our story. And so working at the funeral home was revelatory because it was the first time in my life that I stopped to think about all the baggage, all the hatred that I had had towards my rabbi and all the baggage I was carrying about my Judaism and what it meant. And so, you know, if it hadn't been for for this stage in my life, I don't know if I would ever have gone down this path. And so I'm working at the funeral home. And at no point do I think I'm going to be a rabbi. You know, if there's a list of things that I never thought I'd be, the NFL player followed by a rabbi. It was like as far from like possible as possible could be. But I thought I could be a Jew again. And it was through rabbis like, you know, Linda Holtzman and Jacob Staub and all these people who were kind of like really enmeshed in the Reconstructionist uh, uh, community of Philadelphia that opened up my my eyes to a, a type of Judaism that I had never been exposed to. So Jacob Staub and Rebecca Albert's book was like one of the first pieces of literature that I received from someone when I was exploring my Judaism because all I knew of Judaism is from what I experienced as a kid. And a lot of that didn't make sense because it was from my you know childlike mind. And this was the first time that I was thoughtfully and intellectually delving deep into Jewish thought, you know, this idea that, you know, Judaism is an evolving civilization, that Jews have to evolve with the times. That made a lot of sense to me. I really love that. You know, like a lot of the Mordechai Kaplan stuff about the importance of community and living in two civilizations, you know, that really made a lot of sense to me. Uh, Mordechai Kaplan's theology about you know, God being the salvation, that made no sense to me at the time. Um, so I, I have to be very clear. I, I don't think I quite understood that. And I say to this day that that's like an ongoing process of what does that mean to me? Though I do think, you know, finding the spirituality in ourselves to save ourselves, the salvation to make our lives fuller and meaningful, I do connect that to my story. As a as a plug, I want to say the book is called Exploring Judaism, a Reconstructionist uh, Approach. And it is it is very, uh, very readable and and accessible, very Um, accessible for somebody like me who knew nothing about, you know, the the minutiae of the Jewish world. Like it was my intro. So, you know, this helped me to become, you know, a Jew again, basically. So I wanted to ask what it was like as somebody who is vulnerable, as somebody really who, for lack of a better phrase, you, you saw your life flash before your eyes. What was it like to to be with people or around people at their most vulnerable moments? I mean, were you, were you identify, able to identify more with the bereaved in, in, in some way because of what you'd been through? I wasn't thinking about it like that. I, I think that what that experience had taught me was a lesson in humility and judgment 
you know, I, I, from that day on, I swore I was never going to judge anybody for what they were ever going through, you know, that I always wanted to learn what was, what was the story behind the experience I would watch, you know, and, and I, I think I was just so open to the world. I was so open to mm. learning about people in a way that I wasn't before. And, you know, we talked about how does one become a rabbi in this story? And I'll never forget the moment that that changed my life. If if you want to hear the story, um, we love if, stories here. Yeah. So this is it's about a year after now when I first, you know, went into recovery and I'm working at the funeral home. It's about December, January 2012. And it just had snowed in the Philadelphia area like a foot or two. And all the funerals that weekend were canceled except for one. There was a gentleman who died. He was like in his 90s and he had one, only one living sibling and she was like in her late 80s. Now, people have to understand the older cemeteries in Philadelphia, the monuments are so close together. You could like barely walk through sure. them. Now, if you add snow to the mix, it's almost like impossible to get through. The sister of the deceased was in a wheelchair. So we're there. Everybody's like, how do we get the sister to the graveside? And the decision's made. She can't. She has to sit in the car. And I'm thinking like, you know, this is, I'm at, you know, self-righteous. I'm like, what a tragedy. You know, I'm like so self-righteous that this, the only living sibling of this person has to sit in the car for her brother's funeral. I'm really angered by it. In retrospect, as a rabbi now, no good op, you know, sometimes there are no good you know, prospects, you have to do what's best in the moment. But at the time I was really upset. And so the funeral's going on and I, and I, and I see her in the car and I, you know, I, I decide to walk over and I, you know, I knock on the window and I say, ma'am, my name's Michael. I'm from the funeral home. You know, would you mind if I sat with you? And she kind of like motioned me into the car and we're supposed sitting in the backseat of the car and she's gazing out of the window towards the funeral and we're not talking. And I was just like, ma'am, you know, would you mind telling me a little bit about your brother? And she like shifted her whole body towards me. And it was like, she was waiting for that opportunity. And she started telling me like all these stories about their childhood, like amazing stories about how they escaped the Nazis and walked across Europe and how he saved her life. Like the most amazing stories. And I had this, like this moment where I like realized I had never listened in a conversation. Imagine that I'm like 25 years old and I have this kind of moment where like, I realize this is the first time I've actually listened to a person. I mean, really listened where I'm not constantly talking. And it was such a, a, like a weird revelatory moment for me. And so I could hear the service wrapping up and, you know, truthfully, I, I, you know, I wasn't much of a practicing Jew, but I said to her, I said, you know, would you like to say a prayer with me? And I only knew one prayer. I knew the mourner's cottage because I worked at the funeral home. It was the prayer that was said at every, <laughs> at every service. And so we said the mourner's cottage together. And when it was over, the look on her face was like I had just given her the greatest gift. Like she had this moment of peace. And I remember walking out of the car in a daze like, what just happened? And, and like, how do I always, what was that? And how do I always do that? And so I was telling this to somebody like a week later, I was like, I had this amazing experience where like I helped this woman. And it was like, I was so like, I was so taken with it. And they're like, 
you should be a rabbi. You could be a rabbi. That's exactly what rabbis do. And I go, are you nuts? I can't be a rabbi. They're like, you could be a rabbi. Who knows? You know, and they're like, why don't you go to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College? Go talk to somebody and, and see what it's all about. So I was like, oh, all right, I'll see what it's about. So I went down to the college and, you know, they were like, you could be a rabbi, but you really need to get your Hebrew proficiency a lot higher than it is. And so I, I spent the next year of my life in Israel kind of learning about Judaism in a deeper way, learning Hebrew, and it was enough to get accepted into wow. RC. And a year after that, I was accepted. That was about seven years ago. And I've been on this crazy journey like ever since. Now in 2021, we're, or 5782, we're coming out of the high holy day season and, and not quite yet. And, and um, seven years ago, you're really immersing yourself in Judaism, living in Israel. Are you, are you thinking back to those, those, those four years of addiction? Are you, are you thinking you need to make amends to Shuva? Are you, you know, are you living with, with guilt for whatever harm you may have caused? That's a great question. So let me, let, me, let me state this very, very clearly for everyone out there, for anybody going through an addiction or for anybody who knows someone addiction. I feel no guilt. I feel no shame, no embarrassment. I did not choose that addiction in any way what's, you know, whatsoever. Now, just because I say that, though, and just because I believe addictions are, are predisposed disorders does not mean they don't cause people pain. They cause everyone pain. They cause everyone around them pain and more than anybody, the person bearing the addiction pain. So the question I've been grappling with over the last year is how to share this thing. You know, how do I do this? Because the truth is I've known for a long time I wanted to share this story. In fact, I remember going on a walk with one of my rabbinic mentors, Linda Holtzman, um, who, you know, where we were having this conversation and I, you know, I had this in my mind and, you know, I knew that she was one of the first LGBTQ rabbis to come out in a congregation and share that. And so I remember asking her, you know, you know, when, how did you know what the right time was, you know, and I was telling her a little bit about, you know, my story. And I just remember her giving me this advice to like, you know, wait, you know, wait until you're in a community where you feel loved and, and secure and, and supported. And so I always remember her, you know, telling me that advice. But as I kind of celebrated this 10 year anniversary, you know, I, I started thinking maybe this is the time, you know, I, I it's been 10 years you know, I'm in a community that I love and I feel supported by, but then you start really doubting yourself. What if I, you know, what if I ruin everything I've worked so hard to achieve? What if I lose the trust of my congregation that I've worked so hard to earn? You know, all these things run through your mind. And you go, oh, I'll wait. And then you'll go, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't do it. But then I start thinking, 93,000 people have died from overdoses this year alone. 93,000 reported. I've, I've lost three friends in the past year and a half to overdose. Wow. I, I couldn't just remain silent. I, I felt like I had a responsibility, 
I felt like I was given this, this blessed life, this opportunity to live a life of meaning and blessing. And, and you know what? I do connect that to my personal faith. I do feel like I was given this chance and I do feel like I owe everyone something. And if I, if sharing my story could save just one person's life, how could I not do it? But like more than that, you know, as a rabbi, people come to you every day and share the most vulnerable parts of your, of their lives. And as rabbis, you know, we think a lot about boundaries and boundaries are really important, but I didn't see this as a boundary. I saw this as something that was core and fundamental to who I am as a person. I can't change it. And so I wanted to honor the trust that people have put into me and say, I trust you as much as you trust me. I don't think that you're going to hate me or not trust me for this. I think quite the opposite. I think when I share this, people are going to affirm it and want to, you know, want to know more. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I feel like the response has just been so positive. I don't feel any guilt, any shame. If anything, I feel like so amazingly grateful that I've had all these experiences that have led to this moment where I could share this immensely personal, but very important story kind of with the Jewish community, but with the wider world as well. I mean, since it is such a huge thing, had you had you considered sharing it as, as, as part of the interview process was part of you just like, Hey, why don't I, let me get the gig first. Like, can you, can you, can yeah, you talk you about know, that at there, all? There was a few people who thought, should the rabbi have disclosed this? Let me say very clearly that had anybody asked this in an interview, it's first off, it's illegal to ask anybody in an interview process um, about their medical history. This is kind of deemed medical history. And so had I disclosed this and not gotten the job, that congregation could have been liable. Um, so I always tell people, you know, don't don't ask people these in interview process. It's not it's not appropriate. But there is a question as a That's rabbi, a should I have should I have shared this? And I, I, I think the answer is we should only share these things when we feel safe and secure to do so. This was nobody's business. This is very personal. I decided that I could share this when the time was right. Why would I share this with people who didn't know me, knew nothing about me? You know, to the, the, hear that is the first thing, you know, th that, that leads into the stigma of addiction. We have not come nearly far enough in, in, in erasing the stigma of addiction to be able to share something like this the first time meeting people in a job interview. So I knew right away that was absolutely not the right time. Um, I, I wanted to wait. I, I felt like I could have rightfully never have shared this, but I, I believe that I owed it to everyone around me, everyone going through this addiction process, everybody who's lost family members to it and my community, you know, once they had gotten to know me. I, one of the questions I got, Brian, was like, why not just tell the congregation? Why go to the media? Why share this in, with you know, the media? And I thought that was a really good question. And I, had, and I had an answer for it because I had deeply reflected on that question. Uh, I had felt like, how could I share this with 80 people, 100 people, whatever it is, and expect those people then to keep it a secret? I, I knew right away that that wasn't 
the reality that like people would tell other people and it'd be something like, Oh, have you heard the rabbi of temple Sinai, you know, is an, you know, I didn't want the story keep snowballing into some, you know, I wanted to control my story, my narrative. I wanted it to be told in a way that was life affirming and powerful. Um, so I, I, I thought going to the media was important just so I could control the narrative and tell my story at one time for everybody to hear it. And then hopefully that would open the door to this like impact where now other people are sharing. And, you know, I shared in the beginning when we were in our pre interview that, you know, I receive emails from, you know, what we would call white collar professionals, people who've said, you know, your story inspired me. You know, I've, I've shared my story with my friends, my family, um, my, my professional, you know, colleagues, and I think those type of dominoes falling is how we change the narrative around addiction. When people realize anybody, I mean, anyone can get addicted to these type of drugs. Right. And I guess that that um, that sort of brings me back to the ideas is, I mean, you're you're not a total stranger to me. We've known each other for for a a couple of years. You've been, I've been you know, to your you've home. Been, you've been to my home more I than know once, your kids more than once. I think you've entertained my kids with magic tricks. Um, yep. they, they loved you by the way. Thank, I um, love your kids. They're great. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think I'd heard about a car accident. I knew you had some physical, you know, yeah. residual effects of that, but, but generally you, you seem like this extrovert, you know, really just well grounded person. You're, you're, um, you know, you were on track to being at or or are religious respected religious leader, and I I had no idea, zero idea. Doesn't that, that speak volumes that, about the world what it, we live in? Yeah. I what does it? What does that? What does that speak to? I'm trying to put into words what that what that means. Two things. I think it speaks to two things. One, as I just said, anybody could be going through an addiction, but more likely anybody could be in recovery. Um, and you shouldn't judge people based on you know, their, 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 you know, gender or their race or, or their financial status or their job title, anybody, this, this is such a pervasive issue. Um, it could affect anybody, but more than that, I think it speaks to a society where we treat addiction as like the silent epidemic, where it's known that it's something you don't talk about. It's done behind closed doors for good reason. You know, you know, when we talk about NA or AA or 12 step or support groups, these are, you know, these are very um, private communities because we know the stigma of addiction has not changed enough where people can come out and feel like safe enough to share this. I want that to change. I very much, Brian, understood that my story of addiction, no different than millions of Americans, not different in any way. But you put rabbi before the, you know, the story, people pay attention. And I knew that. I knew because I was a rabbi, this story would get people's attention. And I, and I was banking on that because I knew that if, if, if a rabbi could come out and say, I've dealt with this issue, specifically in a Jewish community that, that thinks addiction doesn't happen inside our walls, then I knew I was creating the positive change I wanted to see in the world because one of the first things I realized in my job as rabbi at Temple Sinai in Cinnamon was several of my congregants had children or grandchildren going through the same thing, but they didn't 
feel comfortable sharing that with anybody but the rabbi. And that was a real big wake up call that, you know, things have to change. Maybe, maybe I'm in a position to, to start that change. Well, I have just another couple seconds of your time. Please consider supporting these groundbreaking conversations that Evolve's having on the podcast, the website, web conversations, and the curriculum we're producing. There's a donate link in our show notes. Every gift matters. Thanks for listening and your support. All right, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Probably a little less than 10 years ago, but but within that range, I, I, I wrote several stories looking looking at addiction, opioid addiction in, in the Jewish community. And, and there were and remain some, you know, some addresses devoted to this. There are, there are local and national organizations. There are a few rabbis who've, who've made a name writing, you know, writing about this. There are books about yeah. Judaism and the 12 step project process. Yeah, one, so, one is by Rabbi Paul Steinberg. I highly recommend it. Um, the Jewish 12 step now, 12 steps, not for everybody, you know, Paul, Rabbi Paul Steinberg, you know, was a recovering alcoholic. So he was immersed in that world, but it's a, it's a great book. If you want to delve in deeper mm-hmm. into like Jewish thinking and recovery, I highly recommend it. And in terms of national organizations, I got to give the Jewish addiction awareness network a plug. They do great work. Um, it's led by somebody, a friend now, her name's Marla Kaufman. She, she dealt with addiction in her family and she devoted her life to kind of spreading the word about, you know, resources in the Jewish community. And and on her website, she goes state by state. Who are the organizations dealing with this? Who are the rabbis dealing with this? It's not nearly enough, but it's enough to get people pointed in the right direction for those like that they care about to finding help. Um, And that's great. And I really appreciate you lifting up some of some of the work that's that's being done out there to save lives and and, and lift stigmas. But my sense is and and I think it's more than a sense that that this still occupies a somewhat nominal space addiction in the Jewish communal agenda in, in synagogue life. I mean, you be hard pressed to find a major church without without an addiction recovery group, but it is not pro forma in, in, in synagogues at all. And, and I'm wondering why that is. And specifically if, if there's, if it has anything to do with sort of the close ties in people's minds between the 12 stack program and Christianity, Jesus, yeah. like, Christian, like, it- Christian, uh, Christian churches tend to be kind of like ahead of the curve, um, on a lot of this stuff. They do a lot of good work. Unfortunately, the tragedy of that is that people who are non-Christians don't always feel comfortable in those spaces, rightfully so, because it's very immersed in Christianity and Christian thought. Um, And that's what makes the tragedy of the fact that there's such an absence in the Jewish world to discuss this issue. Now, I've always traced it to the fact of like Jews, like I've always kind of had the position that, you know, we're not addicted, you know, Jews don't get addicted. That just doesn't happen in our communities. And that's a lie. And and it's a hurtful lie. It harms the people in our communities. And so what needs to change is it does need to become a Jewish communal agenda. The the large organizations need to step up and they need to realize that this issue is way more pervasive than they think it is. They need to devote time, energy, and resources to kind of tackling the issue. I will say federations, specifically Jewish Family and Children's Services, have been doing better in recent years. But that's really it 
in terms of federation. Um, I, I would like to see Hillel's to diving in deeper into this work because col- as I, as you heard my story, college is a lot of the time when these addictions form. Um, so, you know, we do need to change our mindsets. There is a lot of good work happening in the Jewish world, but it's, it's definitely on the micro level. It's definitely not on the macro for like all the issues we're constantly talking about. And I'm, that, I'm hoping that changes. I don't know what will cause that change. Maybe more rabbis sharing their stories, maybe more communal leaders sharing their stories. Um, hopefully what won't cause that change is more death. That's the tragedy. We can't live in a world where we only become reactionary to the problem when people die or lose their lives or their livelihoods. Right. That That is a tragedy we can't allow to happen. I understand that you introduced um, a resolution related to this topic to your, your professional association, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Association. Are you able to say anything about yeah, what that absolutely. resolution is or where that's at in the process? No, that that resolution passed. I, I passed that. I was part. Of, I was one of the main, you know, group of of signatories uh, uh, of several rabbis who put together this um, resolution on behalf of the uh, the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Assembly, saying that we, as a rabbinic movement, commit ourselves to to to, to fighting the opiate crisis. Um, to, to really saying that we're going to encourage synagogues to take a more proactive role, um, to take a more educational role. We're going to do more advocacy, you know, but the other important thing that I thought this, this, um, this resolution really got right that a lot of people don't get right when we're talking about addiction and opiate addiction is that we can't be opiate abolitionists. And let me say why. Because I know a lot of people who believe that these medicines, these drugs are, are, are things that need to totally be abolished. I am a caregiver to two family members who have chronic pain disorders. There are people who legitimately need these medications. And I think one of the, the, the rabbis in that process was someone who was advocating that there, you know, there are people who deal with chronic pain disorders who need these medications. So, you know, we can't be so extreme to say just because someone like myself got in too deep or someone else misuses it for recreational purposes that there aren't people who actually need it. We just need to encourage doctors to be more cognizant of how prescriptions work, about, you know, what is the process of how do you treat acute pain versus chronic and long-term pain. You know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. There's a lot of thinking around addiction, but we need to start encouraging people to, to be a little um, more thorough in their thinking about how addiction works, but also recognizing that people still need these medications. Big picture. Do you have any sense how the last year and a half and the onset of COVID-19 has, has impacted sort of local national efforts to, to combat opioid addiction? It's, it's sad. Um, the pandemic has pushed everything, you know, behind it. You know, I don't know how else to put it other than, you know, the pandemic COVID-19 uh, maybe rightfully in some ways has taken up our national consciousness. What's, what's sad about that is that there's still all these underlying issues 
that are are connected to the pandemic. You know, we I think that there's a lot of research. It's new, but there's a lot of research that's saying that opiate addiction spiking. We know what we know. Overdose have have risen to to some of their highest levels. So this is something we're we're not talking about. It's it's really um, a mystery to me why culturally outside of the Jewish community that this is such a sensitive topic for people to 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 delve in deep. I see it. The media doesn't really want to talk about it unless it's like kind of in a specific you know light, which I don't think is always the most positive light. The media doesn't really cover a lot of recovery stories. They'll cover a lot of addiction stories, overdose stories, um, drug related crime stories. They don't like a, they don't like recovery stories for some reason. But we need to change the the mentality. We need to start having a national conversation. So, you know, reach out to your public servants, reach out to your elected representatives, encourage them to start talking about this issue, encourage people to start kind of bringing this issue to the forefront, because it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse. I mean, you used the word liberated from opioids, which I thought was a really interesting um profound word choice. I, I imagine you still see yourselves self as in recovery and, and, and maybe it's still a struggle. I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering just what gets you through the tough days? Is it Judaism? Is it your role as a rabbi? Is it your family? And I think children? it's, a gr- yeah, I think it's a great question, but I want to answer it in a couple um, ways. One, I don't use the word clean because there is nothing dirty about substance abuse disorder, what you know we call SUD. There's nothing dirty about it. I, I reject words like clean. I'm even rejecting words like sober because you know that doesn't really you know encapsulate the way recovery works for many people. My recovery from opiate addiction was very trying for many years. There are still to this day repercussions of of prolonged opiate use, I feel heightened level of pain from injuries. Um, you know, but the truth is I no longer feel that day-to-day battle of like wanting, you know, I, I, I have way surpassed like needing these medications. In fact, and I was, I, this is one of the first things I told my congregation. I said, the scariest thing for me in recovery from these medications is the day that will come when I don't have a choice in the matter when I get in an accident or if I get in a serious injury again, you know, when I'm in a situation where I can't control it, that scares me. This is maybe TMI, but like, you know, earlier this year I had kidney stones and, you know, you hear a lot about how people go to the emergency rooms and they can't get, you know, opiates anymore. It's so hard. Well, I was in there and they were trying to push it on me, you know, within the first minute. And I was like, you don't understand. I'm not doing it come back with a different solution because I won't take these medications. I'll bear the pain that I'm in. And the pain was severe, but they came back with some other options, which really were helpful. So, you know, I've kind of really had to, you know, deal with some horrible situations pain wise. um, But I've luckily been able to get through it. If the day comes when one day I have to do it, if one day I'm forced to do it, well, you know what? We can't stigmatize that either. I know what I know now. I know the resources. I know the help. If that day, God forbid, ever comes, I'll know how to to handle myself in a way that I didn't before. With that said, you know, a, a lot of people do have the recovery journey that is like an ongoing 
day-to-day struggle for the rest of their lives. You know, that's why I say addiction's different for everybody. And that's why sharing these stories about treatment and recovery are so important so people know that. Wow, this has been such a such a powerful conversation and 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 again really appreciate um your sharing here and elsewhere. I, I do think um you know I, I I do think it makes a difference in lifting lifting the stigma and 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 reaching people with whatever point in this in this struggle they're they're at or or whoever they know and love who may be going through it. Um, I think I want to close by asking as a rabbi, you're, you're, you're a meaning maker. That's, that's part of what you do is help people make, make meaning out of their lives, out of the, the discordance of the world, out of, out of all the messiness that's in our own tradition and stories. And, 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 you've probably said this already, but I'm wondering what's, what's the meaning you take from your own, from your own story? You know, what's, what's the, what's the Devar Torah you you give based on everything you've been through? That we're all on a journey. We're all on this massage, this journey. And, you know, to be human is to be flawed, is to be hurt and broken in so many ways. And it's, it's so cliche to say in the Jewish world, but that, you know, we see ourselves in this divine image, right? That we are made in the image of God. And, and, you know, that at our base level is, is this, this, this pure goodness that sometimes just gets obstructed or gets obscured with a level of like the messiness of the world. And I, and I believe that, you know, the healing process, the recovery process, the speaking process wipes away a lot of that, you know, gook, that a lot of that obstruction to that, that essential goodness and allows you to to tap back into that. It's, but like, but like many things, it also kind of allows you to elevate yourself. My addiction, you know, was so hard. It was so trying, but when I overcame it, there were, I felt like there was endless possibilities. I felt like there was, the world was just, you know, the possibilities were endless. And so if I was to tell anybody going through this today, I would say, you know, this isn't your fault. You're not to blame. You're just a person in a very bad situation. And we all need the help we deserve. And I'll close with this rabbinic piece that many people heard because it's so often quoted from the Talmud. The Talmud says, a life is like a universe. You save one life. It's like you saved the universe. Well, some people read that as like there's ripples to these things that if you save a life, like who knows where that person will go and who knows what that person will do. But I see it differently. I see it as the core essential dignity of saving one life, one person, that we all have this dignity, mm. this respect as humans, and we all deserve to be treated with kavod, with respect, but also with love and kindness and compassion. So please treat yourself with that love, that compassion, but treat others. And if you know someone going through addiction, by all means, show them that kindness, show them that compassion, and help them get the help they need, you know, reach out to me, reach out to the people in your community, your rabbi. There's so many people who want to help. Rabbi Michael Paris, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the conversation with Rabbi Michael Paris. So what did you think of today's show? 
We want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversations, and you're part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with an all-new episode. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Watts. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. The show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and myself and our team will see you next time. Hello.